Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. No short let hotel rooms today, well not for the podcast anyway, but from my new house in beautiful North Devon. Today's story from North East London is I think utterly shocking for a number of reasons, not least due to the sheer level of violence used in broad daylight on a busy street. It's an astonishing story. But before we get started, I'm delighted that this week's show is again sponsored by E Squared Fitness, a fitness app based in London that lets you book the best fitness classes and gym sessions in just a few taps. None of those monthly memberships, just pay as you go. And as you only pay for the workout that you go to, there is no more of that feeling guilty for wasting money on those gym memberships you didn't utilise. With E Squared, you can easily find the workout you want at the right time and just around the corner. Discover the coolest new workouts across London. Whatever you want to try yoga, boxing, indoor cycling or any other activity. E-Squared aggregates everything you want and more. It sounds good, doesn't it? Just download the E-Squared app available on iOS and Android and try for free right now. And listeners to this podcast can claim a £20 credit just by using the promo code capitals P-O-D 20. That's right, simply download the app and use the promo code POD20 for your £20 credit. Thank you. A huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially to this week's new members of our exclusive group. That's Josh Crookshanks, Christine Matthews, Wilma Schroeder and Tina Cocklin. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. So let's quickly set some context for the time of today's story by revisiting the news and music we were listening to in the summer of 2003. It was a hardcore punk revival in the UK with Never Gonna Leave Your Side by Daniel Bedingfield topping the charts. Oh yeah! In the US, number one was Beyonce and Jay-Z with Crazy in Love and the Australian album charts were headed by Delta Goodrum with Innocent Eyes just keeping Nora Jones with the, well, somewhat dreary come away with me from the peak. Just me, or were you a fan? In the news this month, Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore was suspended after refusing to comply with a federal court order to remove a rock inscribed with the Ten Commandments from the lobby of the Alabama Supreme Court building. A heatwave in Paris resulted in temperatures rising to 44 degrees centigrade, leaving over 140 people dead, and a car bomb exploded in the Indonesian capital of Jakarta outside the Marriott Hotel, killing 12 people and injuring 150. In sport, an 18-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo made his debut for Man United in the Premier League in a 4-0 home victory over Bolton Wanderers. It really, really pains me to say it, but I think that along with Thierry Henry, he is the best player I've ever seen live. After Gordon Strachan, Gary Speed and David Batty, of course. Then there was Eddie Gray, John Pearson. Okay, I won't go on anymore. Today's story is from Forest Gate, East London. Forest Gate is around seven miles northeast of Charing Cross and close to Stratford, location of the Olympic Games in 2012. In December 1966, Jimi Hendrix wrote Purple Haze in the Upper Cut Club here, which had been opened by The Who 
and had the small faces as the house band. Arnold Schwarzenegger was known to have lived in Forest Gate and he lifted weights at Wag Bennett's Gymnasium in Romford Road before he achieved fame. But Forest Gate is still a pretty tough part of London and that was certainly the case when our story begins in 2003. On August the 29th, 20-year-old Ayub Khan had been attending Friday prayers at a nearby mosque. When he parked his dark blue Volkswagen Golf, he had blocked a road called Atherton Muse, as did two men who were joining him for prayers in their green Honda Civic. Not long after, 52-year-old Amajit Singh Tawana and his nephew, 25-year-old Rajinder Singh Tawana, were driving to the family hotel that they owned in Forest Gate, the Forest View Hotel in Romford Road. Unable to access the back of their hotel, as Khan and another car had blocked the road, they parked their van across the mews, blocking in Khan's vehicle and the green Honda Civic. They then went inside the hotel where they had lunch with some family members. At around 2pm, the drivers of the two cars in the road who had been for prayers found they could not get out due to the van blocking the road and they began sounding their horns. Amajit came out of the hotel and moved the van, following which the two men in the Honda Civic drove off without incident. But Khan, unfortunately, wasn't like your average member of society who would accept he committed a minor parking violation. In his own mind, he was the big man with previous convictions for robbery and possession of crack cocaine. He immediately got out of his car and started arguing with Amajit and Rajinda, shouting, look what you've done to my car, and pointing to it as if it had been damaged. You've got to remember that Khan, he was a big intimidating unit, and he wasn't slow to use his physical size to his advantage, and he moved towards the slightly built Rajinda, pushing him in the chest as if he wanted to start a fight. When Amajit tried to explain what had happened, and how it was nothing of any consequence, Khan replied, I don't give a damn, and he repeatedly shouted shut up to the other man. Eventually, Khan did get in his car and he drove away. But that wasn't the end of it for Khan, as with his reputation, he felt almost untouchable, even at just 20 years old. Furiously, he drove away from the scene, but then about 10 minutes later, at 2.20pm, Khan and the two other men he'd been at the mosque with returned and they started causing damage to the hotel van which had blocked the road. Amajit and Rajinda just couldn't believe what they were seeing and that these men were back to take this retaliation and so they ran out of the hotel to reason with them. Amajit's 26-year-old daughter, who was present, takes up the story. They exchanged words for a few seconds before one of the men brought out what I know now to be a machine gun. The sound of the gun was so loud. It was firing rounds consecutively, and I saw bullet casings falling to the ground. My dad sort of stumbled and turned towards me. I saw his face. I knew he'd been badly hurt. My dad was clenching his whole body, and he was starting to fall to the ground. Then the attacker turned the machine gun on my cousin, and started firing. He too was sort of staggering a bit, and had been shot. It felt like I was seeing everything in slow motion, and then I saw him repositioning the machine gun, and I knew that I was going to be next, so I started running. 
Luckily for me, I managed to get behind a wall, which took most of the bullets, before reaching the hotel and calling the police. During the 10 minutes when he'd left the scene, Ayub Khan had gone to fetch a Mac 10 pistol, capable of firing a thousand rounds a minute. Khan then pulled the trigger, leaving hotelier Amajit Singh Tawana and his nephew Rajinder Singh Tawana lying dead, covered in blood, in the middle of the summer afternoon outside their own hotel. He then turned the weapon on Amajit's daughter, Harjinder, but did not fire, possibly because the gun had jammed. Harjinder Tiwana watched in horror as the gunman aimed the gun at her, before the gang fled with hoods pulled over their faces. Detectives were just horrified at the violence used in a suburban street in the middle of the day. With help from Harjinder Tawana and other witnesses, Ayub Khan was quickly identified as the prime suspect and the police took the unusual step of naming him as well as offering a £10,000 reward for information leading to his conviction. But it was too late. Soon after the murder, like the coward he was, Khan had fled the country to Pakistan. So in February 2004, Harjinder made a direct appeal for information. Speaking for the first time since the double murder, she claimed that someone in the Muslim community was withholding vital information that could finally bring the killer to justice. She said, I'd no idea that day while we were inside having lunch that in five minutes they would both be dead. My father and I were so close. He was my best friend, she said. We are such a tight-knit family. We live together and we work together. I haven't been back to the hotel since it happened. I'm too scared in case they come after me because I'm a witness. What frightened me the most was how easy it was for this gang to go away for 15 minutes and come back with a machine gun. If it can happen to us, it can happen to anyone. I want their killer to be caught so I can look him in the face and ask him why. I want to appeal to the mosque, to the people who were praying there that Friday, to come forward with any information. There's no way that people praying in the mosque don't know who he is and where he's hiding. Every day they stay silent. These people are choosing to keep the killer free and no one is safe. Looking at his picture, who she'd identified as the murderer, she said of Khan, I will never forget the face of the man who murdered my father. Ayub Khan was added to the Met Police's most wanted list, but for the next six years, the trail agonisingly went cold. Meanwhile, detectives discovered through mobile phone evidence that after leaving the scene, Khan repeatedly phoned another man, 20-year-old Abu Bakar Mansha Khan. If this name sounds familiar to you, it was because this market stall holder was jailed for six years after plotting to hunt down and kill a decorated British soldier. When his flat was searched, Special Branch found a blank firing gun in the process of being converted to fire live rounds. There was also a scrap of paper with the name of Corporal Mark Biles and the word hero, as well as just the most horrendous collection of DVDs showing Osama bin Laden and the beheading of British hostage Ken Bigley. In court, 
the prosecution alleged he had the address of Corporal Biles with the intention of killing him or doing him significant harm after press coverage of his exploits in Iraq. And during the trial, Corporal Biles spoke from behind scenes as he gave a brief but graphic account of the bloody confrontation in the volatile Iraqi area of Alamara on May the 14th, 2004. A soldier for 13 years, the 35-year-old father of one recalled, I had two choices, stay there and be cut to pieces, or put down concentrated fire and attack the positions, which is what I did. The Sun article described Corporal Biles as first charging a trench of rebels before rifle-butting, punching and kicking them in hand-to-hand combat. He was quoted as saying it was either me or them. A paragraph of the article in the flat had been circled when Corporal Biles said he reckoned he killed between 15 and 20 insurgents. And this, it seems, was the reason that Mancha Khan wanted to kill him. Peter Clark, head of Scotland's anti-terrorist branch, said after the case, Abu Mansha researched the personal details of several people. Put this together with the other material that was found when he was arrested, and it's obvious that he was involved in terrorist targeting. Abu Bakr Mansha Khan was arrested in September 2003 about the two murders, but he was released and was never charged in relation to this incident. But why had Khan called him repeatedly straight after the shooting? Was it as he knew that Mansha Khan had the contacts to help him run away to Pakistan and evade justice? This appears to be the most likely reason for the contact between the two. The big factor that worried detectives in this case was how a pretty low-level criminal like Khan had been able to access such a nasty piece of weaponry as the Mac 10 gun used in the murders. They discovered that the same weapon had been used in another shooting that year in Coventry. Had Khan bought the gun? And if so, for what purpose? Then almost seven years after the murder, a breakthrough. Khan was in Pakistan and he travelled to Bangladesh to visit a friend in the city of Silvet. His details popped up on the Bangladeshi police system and Khan was arrested at Dakar airport, flying back to Pakistan. I don't know about you, but I'd have loved to have seen his face when he was pulled to one side. British detectives arranged for him to be extradited back to the UK, which duly happened two months later. And Ayub Khan was then able to face justice when he was tried for the double murder and one count of attempted murder. Khan, as you might expect, pleaded not guilty. Prosecutor Nicholas Hilliard said, Nobody hearing about this case could have been anything other than horrified. Two good, blameless men, shot dead in broad daylight with a machine gun. It raises a whole host of issues that people feel strongly about. The availability of firearms, the use of extreme violence, quite out of proportion to the nature of the original dispute, the heart was taken out of a special family, and the jury they clearly didn't need much time to find Khan guilty. At Woolwich Crown Court, he was found unanimously guilty of the double murder and jailed for a minimum of 26 years. The judge, Mr Justice Saunders, described the killings as brutal, cold-blooded and pointless, 
saying that the 26-year-old Harjinder Tawan's witnessing of the killing was a most appalling memory which will never leave her. He added that all this arose out of an argument about parking just shows how low regard the culprits had for human life. Members of the victim's family wept in the public gallery as the unanimous verdict of the jury was announced. Kalbinda Carr, sister of Rajinda, said in a statement, The impact of this day has completely destroyed and broken the whole family. After the trial, Detective Inspector Andrew Yeats of the Homicide and Serious Crime Command said, Amrajit and Rajinda and their families were highly respected members of their community. They were hard-working hoteliers and property developers who had been proactive in trying to improve community life in Forest Gate by working with the local authority and community groups. They were callously murdered in the most appalling way with the use of extreme violence beyond any comprehension. I would like to take this opportunity to pay tribute to their families for the dignified way in which they've handled such an incredibly difficult situation. They waited eight years for justice while Ayub Khan attempted to evade the authorities. This case clearly shows the Metropolitan Police Service works tirelessly to pursue violent and dangerous criminals and we will bring them to justice no matter where they seek to hide in the world. Detectives took this opportunity to appeal for help in identifying the two other men involved and locating the murder weapon. Diyayit said, We are still seeking two casually dressed Asian men wearing hooded tops in their late teens or early 20s. They ran away from the scene during the busy period after Friday prayers and turned right into Norwich Road, crossed Romford Road and continued south in Margaret Park Road where they've got into a parked vehicle. The Mac 10 machine pistol is yet to be recovered. I would appeal for anyone with any information on the two outstanding suspects or the murder weapon to come forward and assist my team with the ongoing investigation. But so far, there have been no further arrests. If you can help this case, please contact Crime Stoppers directly. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It made me really angry, as I think you probably could tell. Somewhat naively, I thought that the use of machine guns was exceptionally rare, but a quick search of cases shows they've been used depressingly often in the UK. Just for example, in 2008, two Manchester gang members were jailed for using a submachine gun in an attack on a man in a Manchester gym. The men punched the victim and hit him over the head with the gun at Mossside Leisure Centre. The two of them, both in their early 20s, admitted a firearms charge and were sent to prison for five years and seven years. Do these prison sentences seem ridiculously lenient for possessing a machine gun to you? I know that I get criticised a lot for my view that we should be avoiding sending people to prison whenever possible and when we do we should be rehabilitating them rather than the punishment. But I think those sentences are just nowhere near enough. It's a machine gun for goodness sake. And it's the same for the coward Ayub Khan. Is 26 years really enough for what he did? Which will mean that he could be a free man again by his mid-40s. Do you think this is another clear case where it's hard not to have sympathy with those who argue for capital punishment? Or is he able to be rehabilitated and on his release be no longer a threat? I'm not sure. 
but the crime from the second I read it is just so shocking and horrific. To me, it's made worse by the fact he'd been at prayer 20 minutes before murdering two men in cold blood during a summer afternoon. And also by the fact that by driving away, he had time to cool off and make an informed decision on his actions. And yet he still felt it was okay to come back and gun down two strangers with no gang connections for a minor traffic violation in his own mind. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? And then to leave the country for Pakistan rather than face the consequences of his actions. Like me, do you think that with these gangsters sometimes, they're all very aggressive and quick to take action, but often just as quick to run away? I don't know. I think no one would be too fussed if the key to his cell slipped down the drain one day and he was forgotten about. And then the poor families and friends of the innocent victims. As is so often the case on this podcast, all I guess we can do is to hope they're able to live their lives as fully as possible without this terrible occurrence defining them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to the Facebook group to join almost 1900 of us discussing this case and all aspects of UK true crime. And if you are a member 1900, you will qualify for the most terribly exciting goodie bag. I know, I know, and they told you that dreams don't come true. To support the show and enable me to keep producing this podcast every week, please do head to patreon.com slash UK true crime, where you will find 24 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that's all for me for this week. I'm off to make the 93rd call of the last week to BT to try to get my broadband sorted out and explain the problem all over again. Joy unconfined. So until next week, and especially for the guy in the Facebook group, I won't name you today, who hates it. Woohoo! Hi there! Stay classy. (laughs) Cheerio for now.